We're continuing in our study on uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, that was quite the winter storm we had on Friday night and Saturday, even some thunder and lightning. Did you hear uh, and see that? And uh, did you see the 12 inches of exceptionally heavy packing snow uh, in your uh, driveway or all around your, your vehicle on a Saturday morning? That was a lot of snow, and that was a lot of work. Um, my son Ezra has a bit of a small business getting started, uh, shoveling driveways uh, in our neighborhood, and there was so much work to be done that he had to enlist, you know, some employees, uh, including myself. Uh, Ezra, I think you can't afford me. You're going to have to increase your rates if, uh, if you're going to have me continue uh, with you. Uh, the thing about that storm on Friday, as unique as it was, like we already had a storm, was that on Monday? And a storm a couple of weeks ago, and we can remember back to the big ice storm about 10 years ago, and there were storms that we tell our kids about, and the, and the snowbanks were two feet over our head, and, and then our grandparents told us about storms, and all throughout history, we're familiar with storms. We, we get warned about them, and sometimes we hear the warnings in the, uh, in the news, and there's this big hype, snowmageddon is coming! And then nothing seems to happen, and other times, you know, it's snowing, and then the snow actually does come. But we have a frame of reference, don't we? Because we've had other storms. We've seen it rain before. We've seen a lot of rain before. We've seen it snow before. We've seen a lot of snow. We've, we've seen high winds, and we, we, we see, we, we've seen all of these things before. But what's described in Genesis chapter 6 is something that no human being on earth had any sort of category for. It was... It was it was the, st the storm that no one's, even though they were given, there was a special weather statement that was laid out a century in advance, and yet no one had any category for a worldwide cataclysmic flood. Uh, today, uh, the title for today's message is simply this, it's the ark uh, we're going to go from Genesis chapter 6, uh, verse 9, all the way down through uh, Genesis chapter uh, 7, uh, verse 10. And I want to share with you uh, sort of the big idea or the core message of this uh, text. Every sermon, every Bible teaching should have a big idea, sort of a summary statement. And, but today, I just want to put it right on the screen for you. Uh, here's the big idea. Here's the truth that we need to understand, that the Lord punishes evil while protecting his people and fulfilling his promises. Three things you need to know about God. He will always punish evil, he will always protect his people, and he will always fulfill his promises. And then our response to that truth about who God is, is this. Our faith in the Lord should result in obedience to his word. If you believe those things, if you believe that God will punish evil, protect his people, and fulfill his promise, that that should lead to faith-filled obedience in our lives, which is what we see in the life of Noah. We're uh, introduced to Noah uh, in verse 9. The first few verses are about uh, Noah, so we're going to work our way through this passage by looking at Noah first. And then there's a verse or two describing the, the, the society in which Noah lived. We're going to talk about the earth. And then most of our time today is going to be looking at the Lord and the instructions that he gave to Noah to build the ark and then uh, to enter into it. 
So our passage begins in verse 9 with that familiar phrase, these are the generations of Noah. We have 50 chapters in our English Bibles for the book of Genesis. The original Hebrew uh, book of Genesis had 10 chapters. And Toledoth, or th- these are the generations of, this is like the, this is the, the chapter heading. This is a sign that we're looking at a new chapter. Chapter 2 verse 4 was the generations of the heavens and the earth. Last week, we looked at the generations of of Adam and tracing the line of Seth all the way to Noah. And now a new chapter, the generations of Noah, are started in verse 9. It goes on to say that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Three things that we can learn from Noah from this text. First off, that he was a righteous man. Secondly, that he was blameless in his generation. And thirdly, that he walked with God. Noah, first and foremost, was a righteous man. Noah was not a perfect man. When when the word righteousness is used, particularly in the Old Testament, we're not talking about someone's life in terms of perfection. We're talking about someone's life in terms of direction. And what was the focus of Noah's life? Life. Noah was by no means a perfect man. We're told in verse 8 that he found favor with God, which is God, God chose to be gracious to Noah. And Noah was sinful, just like every other human being on planet earth at the time was sinful. Skip ahead to chapter 8 and look at verse 21. Noah is now off the ark, and he's making an offering to God. Why is he making an offering? Because he knows that he's a sinner. And so he makes this offering to God, saying, God, these animals are dying because in my place, as my substitute, because I deserve to die for my sin. And look at what God says in chapter 8, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intention of man's heart. What man? There's only four men left. There's only Noah and his three sons. And so even after the flood, God's not like resetting, saying, okay, now everyone's righteous from now on. No. They still have the same sin problem that all of the people who died in the flood had. So Noah was righteous. But he was righteous, not in terms of perfection, in terms of direction. Noah believed what God said. And his faith led to obedience. And that obedience led to righteous living. The connection between faith and righteousness is all over the Bible. The original audience will later hear, a few chapters later, from uh, Genesis chapter 15 about Abram. And Abram, who had no kids... God sent him, sent him outside, had him count the stars in the sky and said, that's how many offspring you're going to have, Abram. And it says that Abram believed God. He had faith. He believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. The, his belief, his faith, the direction of his life was counted to him as righteous. Secondly, he was blameless in his generation. Verse 9 says he was blameless in his generation. He stood out. He was different. He wasn't like all of the... Again, he, was, he had one thing in common with everyone else on earth. He was a sinner. 
but he, he wasn't like everyone on earth and that he, he, he sought after God. He stood out. Loved ones, do we stand out at work? Do we stand out at school? Do we stand out in our family? Or are we just going with the flow? Are we just laughing at the things that our friends and family laugh at? Or are, are we celebrating the things that our friends and family and fellow students and coworkers laugh at and celebrate? Are we participating in everything that the world, or are we blameless in our generation? Are we set apart? Are we different? We don't like being different. We don't like it. How many white, silver, and black cars did you see on your way here today? Have you noticed there's only three colors of car anymore? We used to have brown cars and taupe cars and purple cars and all different, but why? We, because someone just noticed, oh, they have a black car or they have a gray car. They, we, we want to fit and how many of us came in here today with a black winter jacket? Because we, everyone else is wearing a black winter jacket. Sorry if you're not wearing a black winter jacket. I don't want to center you out. You look great. <laughs> we have this tendency to want to fit in. We are, we are relational creatures by nature. And we want to fit in with the crowd. And in many ways, that's a good thing. But there are some things that we cannot fit in with the crowd in. We're Christians, we're followers of God, must choose to take a stand and to stand out. Noah was blameless in his generation. Do you stand out? And then it says that Noah walked with God. Just like Enoch in chapter 5, verse 22 to 24, where it says that Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him. In the middle of Genesis 5, where it says, and he died and he died and he died and he died. Here's Enoch who escaped death. How did he escape death? Because he walked with God. And now here is Noah who is going to escape the flood. He's also going to escape death. How is he going to escape death? Because he walked with God. Again, the original audience have been told in Leviticus chapter 26 that after God lays out all of the commands and all of the details about the sacrifices and the tabernacle, God says in Leviticus 26, so walk with me. And then he says, and I will walk with you. Be like Noah. Be like Enoch. Be different from the world. And then this theme of walking gets picked up in the New Testament. Let me, let me just give you one small example of how massive the theme of walking with God is in the New Testament. This is just one book of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 4.17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles are the nations. Don't walk in the way of this world. Walk with God. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us. 5.8, walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk. Paul says, watch your step. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. 
The time in which Paul was writing, he could say the days were evil. In Noah's day, clearly the days were evil. In our day today, loved ones, the days are evil. But Noah walked with God. If you've ever been at a busy airport or uh, you know, some, a place like Union Station, downtown Toronto, and there's just masses of people, and have you ever found yourself trying to get on the train when everyone's trying to get off the train, or you're trying to get to, to this stop when everyone's trying to go, go ahead in the other direction, and there's this sea of people, and you know what it's like, isn't it, where you're trying to make your way through, and it's almost like if you lifted up your feet, the crowd would carry you along. And sure, in the short term, you would have some temporary comfort and ease if you would just say, okay, I'm just going to go along with everyone else, but you're going to end up at the wrong stop. You're going to end up off the train when you're supposed to be on the train. And so if you know where you're supposed to be going, you walk against the traffic. You go against the grain, against the flow, and it is hard, but it is worth it because God is walking there with you. We're told about Noah's family, that he had three uh, sons, more about them uh, in later chapters. But this is Noah, righteous, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. Secondly, let's look at the earth on which Noah was living, an earth that was corrupt and filled with violence. Corrupt and filled with violence. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their own way on the earth. The world in which Noah was living was a corrupt world. It was a broken world. It was a a destroyed world. And that they had self-corrupted. It says that they had corrupted themselves. No one did it to them. No one did it to humankind. We did it to ourselves. Look back at Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 to get a a, a more description about the state of the earth. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that the corruption was wide and that it was deep and that it was constant. It says that the corruption, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was wide. It was all over the place. There was no escaping it. You went from one town to the next, one home to the next, one person to the next, one nation to the next. All you could see was wickedness. It was wide. And then it was deep. It went into the every intention and thought of the heart it wasn't just exterior behavior. It went de- It was wide and it was deep. It affected everyone and it affected everyone in every way. Right down to the heart level. And it was wide, it was deep, and it was constant. Notice how it says the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It never stopped. The corruption in the world. Political corruption, sexual corruption, social corruption, moral corruption, spiritual corruption. And because that was going on in the heart of every human being, then the text tells us what was happening with the hands of every human being. Two times it says that the world was filled with violence. 
Three times it says the world is corrupt. Two times it says the world is filled with violence. Everyone was following after Lamech, their ancestor, who said, what, you looked, you looked at me the wrong way? You bumped into me by accident? I'm going to kill you. Where revenge is the way. This was the kind of world that Noah was living in, a world that was corrupt and a world that was filled with violence. Loved ones, it's scary to say. It sounds a lot like our world today. The, the corruption, the, the destruction, the breaking down of boundaries, politically, sexually, socially, morally, and spiritually. We, we live in a corrupt age, and we live in a violent age. And yes, we are seeing that same sort of spirit of Lamech, just senseless violence. I mean, we watch it all the time. On, it's how we entertain ourselves. And then we're, we're seeing it where, where groups of, of young men with no purpose in their life are just laying violent hands on innocent people. With, we, there was a story in Toronto a few, a few months ago, a group of young women, teenage women, just violently attacked a helpless person for no reason, a world filled with violence. And we may not have that same skull-bashing, brutal uh, violence, bloodshed in our world today that we might have seen in Lamech, but we have a more clinical approach, don't we? The violence that's done to the most vulnerable in our world. Our world is filled with violence. Our hospitals and medical clinics, unfortunately, are filled with violence towards the unborn, towards the disabled towards the elderly, and now towards just the, the, the depressed. We're, we're just killing people now at their most vulnerable, the people who by, by all, by, at every other time in history should be protected and preserved. Now we're just killing them. We live in a world increasingly that is filled with violence. Judgment came on this culture, and we need to pray that judgment will not come on our culture. We need to pray for our nation and pray for our society. So this is Noah. This is the world that Noah was living in. Look at, look at verse 12. It says, and, and God saw the earth, and behold. I'll just hang on there for a second. That sounds familiar. God saw and behold. You see, Noah's a, uh, sorry, Moses is a brilliant author, an incredible writer, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is a callback to something that he said earlier. It, so, it sounds like the first week of creation, doesn't it? God saw the earth and behold. And, and what's the next sentence supposed to be? Behold, it was Good, that's Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 31. He saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And now in 6.12, it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Behold, it was 
corrupt. And this is, the, this is the Lord that we're learning about, the Lord who punishes evil and protects his people and fulfills his promises. Let's get the big idea back on the screen there. And that our faith in this God should result in obedience to his word. So now we're going to spend the rest of our message looking at the Lord. We're going to see that the Lord is judge, that he's savior, and that he is covenant keeper. God is judge. We can be thankful for our legal system in our society, as flawed as it is. Judges are not perfect. Attorneys and lawyers are not perfect. But we can at least be thankful, rooted, on our, rooted in our Judeo-Christian uh, background as a society. People are innocent until proven guilty. And there is due process. And evidence must be brought forward. And you're supposed to stand in front of a jury of your peers or in front of a qualified judge. And as thankful as we can be for judges in our world today, judges don't see everything. You have to have a trial. The judge has to see the evidence. The judge has to hear the arguments. The judge has to listen to the testimony because the judges don't know everything. But God who is judged, notice, go back to chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw Chapter 12, sorry, chapter 6, verse 12, God saw. Chapter 6, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. He saw it all. God sees all of the evidence, all of the time. And he sees it right down deep, even to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God is judge. He sees Verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. The Hebrew there is uh, uh, before my face, like a judge who's looking at all of the evidence and then comes to a conclusion. God has made a a decision. He He has determined that this is the punishment for planet earth. And God's not deciding this on a whim. He has a reason for why he's going to do what he's going to do. He says, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for, here's the explanation, the earth is filled with violence through them. God has a reason. There's a rationale for the judgment and for the sentence. Next week, we're going to look at how multiple cultures on multiple continents also have flood stories. But there's no good reason for the flood. The other lowercase gods in other religions, some of them are just like, human beings are too noisy. Let's get rid of them. And then they have a flood and the the gods get afraid of all the water and they run away. It's, It's utter chaos. God is the judge. He sees it all and he makes this determination. He makes this judgment. And then he says in verse 13, he says, behold... I will destroy them with the earth. Now, I mentioned how the word corrupt is used three times in verse 11 and 12. That word destroy in verse 13 is the same word. God says he will destroy the earth because we as humans have already destroyed it. 
We as human beings, because of sin inside of us, we have self-destructive tendencies. And God says, this world is already destroyed. Humans are already destroyed. There's so much violence, you're destroying one another. And God says, I'm just going to finish the job. I'm going to fully destroy what humans have destroyed. So God is judge. He will judge everything. He will judge everyone. He will judge you. He sees. He sees everything. He sees when we're not working, when we're supposed to be working. He sees every internet search history that gets promptly deleted. He hears everything that gets whispered behind our friend's back. Every, uh, every word of gossip that's ever uttered. He sees every dishonest uh, transaction in a business deal. He sees it all. He sees all of the times where we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. He even sees down to our hearts. He even sees that when we do things that look good to everyone else, he knows deep in our heart why we're really doing it, that often our motivation is skewed and sketchy. He's going to judge you. He's going to judge everyone, and he's going to judge everything. And if the only way that you relate to God is by judge, then that's a very scary thought. Because you might think that you are a good person, but that's your judgment. You might think that you're better than some of the evil people in history or even better than people who live in your apartment building or in your neighborhood. You might think that you're better than some of the other kids in your school, but that's your judgment. You're using your standard And we all think we're better than we actually are. God sees it all. And some of us are thinking, yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes and I'm a sinner and I know that. But I've done a lot of good things as well. That's actually irrelevant. If you steal somebody's car and then drive it to a homeless shelter to feed the hungry, Feeding the hungry homeless people doesn't cancel the fact that you stole the car. You're still committed grand theft auto and you're going to go to jail for stealing a car. If you you beat someone to a pulp and then go off and and care for, for people with special needs, then it's wonderful that you're caring for people with special needs and that's terrific. But that doesn't cancel out that you assaulted another human being. That's not how the courts work. That's not how God works in his judgment. The good doesn't cancel out the bad. The bad must be judged. And all of us will relate to God as judge. And if that's all you relate to him as, that's very scary. But here's the good news. God is not only judge, he is also savior. And he he formulates a way to save Noah. Noah who found favor with God, who found grace with God. He tells him in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. 
We don't really know what gopher uh, wood is, but he would have needed a lot of it. A pitch was like waterproofing material. It's going to be a lot of water covered on the outside and on the inside. That's a big job. He says, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. There's a Hebrew cubit. There's an Egyptian cubit. We don't know exactly how big this thing was, but here's sort of a schematic of uh, the ark coming up on the screen. So 300 cubits is somewhere between 450 and 515 feet long. 45 or 50 feet high, about 75 or 80 feet wide with three decks. And then there is a little, like that, that's the size of a human being there on this massive, a boat is kind of the wrong word. There, there were words in, in Hebrew for boat. God doesn't use the word boat. He just used the word for box. He's like, just build a big box. Uh, Pastor Chris and his family were down at a, a conference in, uh, in Kentucky, and while they were down there, they, they visited the Ark Encounter, which is this, this massive, realistic ark that someone has built that people can go and tour. Chris, you should really be preaching this message. Or if, here's, here's your ark expert sitting right here in the second row. If you have any ark questions, uh, these two, are th- this whole family knows all about it. Look at the size of this thing. See the white arrow there? That's pointing to people. Those tiny little pixels down there are people in comparison to that enormous ark. It's interesting. There's other um, flood narratives, as I mentioned, all around the world. Different dimensions are given for the boat. Scientists have tried to have all the different, you know, uh, uh, boats to see whether or not they could float. Many of them can't. This is actually seaworthy. If you put this in the water, it would be buoyant based on uh, the dimensions that are given. Verse 16, God says to make a roof. Verse 17, God says, to be, for behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. He says, I will establish my covenant. This is something else we need to know about the Lord is that he is covenant keeper. He is covenant keeper. This is the first time the word covenant is used in the Old Testament. The first time that it occurs in the book of Genesis. The concept of covenant is absolutely foundational for understanding the rest of the book of Genesis and really the entire Bible. Covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's it's like a contract, even though it's more binding and it's rooted in relationship. The best definition of, 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 of covenant comes from uh, Tim Keller. In, in my mind, this is how Tim Keller describes a covenant. He says, a covenant is a relationship more loving and intimate than a mere legal relationship, yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal relationship. The covenant is a stunning blend of law and love. Stunning because it's personal. It's a personal relationship made more loving and intimate because it is legal. 
It is this way through voluntary, mutual, binding promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstances are. With a contract, if one person breaks the terms of the contract, the contract is broken. But in a covenant, you make the promise that even if the other person doesn't follow through on what's being promised, you're going to remain faithful to the covenant. And here's the incredible thing. Although this is the first time the word covenant occurs in Genesis, God doesn't say that he's going to make a covenant with Noah. He says he's going to establish a covenant. To make a covenant in Hebrew is to cut. It's the same word for cut. You cut a covenant like you cut a deal. But that word establish is merely saying, I am going to build on what's already there. I'm going to follow through on the promise that I've already made. And as you read the creation story of God creating Adam and Eve and telling them to be fruitful and multiply, giving Adam the law to follow, don't eat from that tree, and to put them in the garden to work it and to keep it. It has a lot of characteristics of covenant. In fact, in the book of Hosea, it says that Adam broke the covenant. You see, even though Human beings are sinful for the core, to the core. Every thought and intention of the human heart is only evil continually. The human beings have broke their side of the covenant. If it was a contract, it would be over. It would be torn up. But it's not a contract. It's a covenant. And although we are covenant breakers as people, God is a covenant keeper. And he is going to establish and continue and build on the covenant that he had made with Adam and Eve. And he was going to establish it with Noah. And this is going to have huge ramifications as you follow the rest of the book of, of, of Genesis, especially for the original readers. Because in Genesis chapter 15, after Abram looks at all the stars in the sky, God makes a covenant with him about the promised land and the blessing and then the people of Israel who are now on their way to the promised land, they know that the reason why they've been set free from slavery is because in Exodus 2, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And then the, the, the people wandering through the wilderness, they end up at Mount Sinai. They hear the Ten Commandments thundering down from the mountain. What's happening in that moment? God is making a covenant with the nation, the Mosaic Covenant. And so they understood covenant, and they understood that even though people are unfaithful, God will establish and keep his covenant. And then you fast forward to us, and as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family, we're going to take the bread, and we're going to remember Christ's body, and then we're going to take the cup. And what did Jesus say when he held the cup? He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. We serve a covenant-keeping God. And he kept his covenant with Adam and Eve, and he established his covenant with Noah. And Christ has made a new covenant with us. Verse 19, it says, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. 
of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to his kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So not only did he have to build this massive boat, he had to figure out a way to get all these animals together. Then he had to arrange the logistics just to feed them all. This task is just unreal. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Such a short little summary. It probably took about a hundred years for all of this to happen. And Noah did this. (laughs) Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. So he commanded him to build the ark. Now he's commanding him to go into the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You stand out, Noah. You follow my word. Verse 2, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Two things that we're noticing here. He wants more of the clean animals, the animals that were to be used in sacrifices. They probably made sacrifices on the ark while they're waiting for the flood to end. And they definitely made sacrifices when they got off the ark as well. Again, the original readers, they had the tabernacle. They had the sacrificial system. They understood clean and unclean animals. And because they're human beings, they also understood the importance of male and female. Have you noticed that in this text? It says, bring two. Bring a male and bring a female. Because that's that's the way you're going to keep them alive. Like that's basic biology, right? If you want chicken, if you want more chickens, you want the chickens to stay alive, you need a male chicken and you need a female chicken. You need at least one chicken that lays eggs and then you need another chicken that's a male that's going to to help produce those. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's basic, basic biology. It was more of a reminder of how we live in a world that is corrupt, that is destroyed, that is broken. We don't understand basic biology, male and female. Here it's very clear. You want to stay alive, you need male and you need female female. It's right here. You don't have to go to Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. It's here in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7 as well. Verse 2, in chapter 7, verse 2 says, the male and his mate. Then God says in verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So Noah's been building this thing for like a hundred years. He's got all the animals. He's acquired all the food. And then God says, okay, it's the seven day countdown now. Now you got to start, you got, you got a week to get everything into the ark now. Verse six, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark, notice this, to escape the waters of the flood. If you wanted to escape the judgment, if you wanted to escape the wrath, the flood, you had to go into the ark. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, verse 9, two and two, male and female went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. Verse 9 says that this happened as God commanded 
Noah. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, Noah did all the Lord had commanded. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Remember in our big idea, God's going to punish evil, he's going to protect his people, and he's going to fulfill his promises. And our faith in the Lord should result in obedience to his word. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded him. 7, 5, Noah did all that God commanded him. 7, uh, 9, he did all that God commanded him. Our response is obedience. He did it all. He did what God told him to do. And then God did what he said he would do. Verse 10, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. God was true to his word, right, right down to the day. Didn't come early on day six, didn't come late on day eight or nine. God said it's going to be seven. We waited 100 years now, or roughly. Now it's coming down to seven days. Proverbs 30 says, every word of God proves true. If God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. I love how the author of Hebrews sums up uh, Noah's mentality. It says, by faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Saving. God is a savior. The ark is what saved them. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah is called a righteous man in chapter 6, verse 9. He's called a righteous man in chapter 7, verse 1. But that righteousness came not from his perfect deeds, but from his faith. But his faith was not just, yeah, I believe some things about God. No, his faith was put into action. He built an ark. Noah obeyed all that God had done and we need to respond to God with faith-filled obedience. What can we learn about faith-filled obedience from the story of Noah? We can learn that uh, to obey God by faith is very costly. We, we can't even really quantify in our minds what this cost Noah. Think about time. Think about acquiring enough lumber. And he didn't just, you know, head on down to, to uh, Home Depot. He had to fell trees. He had to plane them into boards. J just acquiring, the, just imagine how much money and time it would have taken just to get the materials, let alone to build the thing. Then to get enough pitch, I don't even know what pitch is. Then to get enough pitch, go down to Pitch R Us and get a whole thing of pitch and pitch the outside and the inside. I think I know what pitch is. I'm just joking. Then he's got to acquire all of the animals and keep them all organized before they end up going into the ark. And then have you thought, listen, I, we're feeding four boys in our house. It costs a lot. Try to think about a pair of every animal and seven pairs of every clean animal. Think about what they eat and think about trying to stop them from eating one another. There's a huge cost. There is a, there's a time cost. There's a, there's a financial cost. There was a relational cost. 
Second Peter says that Noah was a herald of righteousness, which means that Noah was an evangelist. He was trying to tell people, listen, this is a really big box here. You're all welcome to join me because judgment is coming. And, and how many people went with him? No one. Just, just his wife and his own, his own sons and his son. No one listened to him. And, and Noah couldn't do this kind of in a closet. <laughs> he, he didn't build an ark just in his spare time where no one noticed what was going on. Every, you can see it from miles away. Go, go check out what Noah's doing. Noah, why are you wasting your time? Where's the water? Where's the flood? Look at you chasing the ostrich. Oh, the hyena's getting away over there. Oh, now the hyena's chasing the ostrich. Noah, why are you doing all of this? It would have mocked, it would have seemed insane to his neighbors. Loved ones, it, it takes time. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you relationships. Also, just imagine, even before they got into the ark, let alone being into the ark, in the ark, just imagine the sights and the sounds and the smells. Obedience is messy. It's very, very messy. And sometimes we hover, we hover around the periphery of what obedience or walking with God actually looks like. And we know that if I were to truly engage in following Jesus, we know that there's a lot of messiness there. There's a lot of my own messiness that I don't want other people to know about. And there's a lot of other people's messiness if I truly try to love them as, my, as myself. That's just going to get messy. And so we stay to the outside. It's going to cost you. It's going to be messy. Following Jesus is going to take your whole life, everything you have, all of your time, all of your money, all of your resources, all of your relationships, it's all in. And here's the truth, it's all worth it. Because on day seven, God said the rain was going to come and it came. And Jesus said that he is the judge and that he is coming back. And in that day, no matter how many people might ridicule us or how many relationships get broken or how ostracized we feel or, or how difficult we find the Christian life to be, we need to know and understand that it will all be worth it. Because we know whatever it costs us, we know that, that we look past the ark and we see the cross and we see what obedience costs Jesus. Noah's act of obedience led to life. Jesus' act of obedience led to his own death. So that he could be raised again. So that just like Noah and his family ran to the ark to, to, to escape the wrath of God. We as the family of God can run to the cross to escape the wrath that all of us deserve for our sin. That's the greatest cost. And whatever we have to give up or whatever temporary discomfort we have to live with, it will all be worth it. Because Jesus is worthy. Let's pray and bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love uh, towards us that is poured out to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would be moving in power by your Holy Spirit even in our midst as we prepare to take in our hands the cup and the bread, as we think about covenant, as we think about cost, as we think about obedience, as we think about faith, as we think about the truth that you punish evil 
and fulfill your promises and protect your people. We marvel at the fact that you punished your son in our place so that you could be faithful to the covenant of people who do nothing but break it. And so, God, we love you and we thank you. We worship you in this moment. We pray for reverence and awe and joy in your salvation as we continue to worship you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.